I had the very uh, daunting task of being both Damien Barr and Diana Atthill this evening. <laughs> Um, I think I'll need stilts and a much more convincing accent for Damien. But uh, I, think, I think if I really try, I can do Diana a bit. When I first met Diana, and I did grow up in the home counties, I didn't understand her because she was so posh. Um, so Diana uh, has applauded on the front of the book. So for those of you who haven't seen it, she says... It leaves the reader elated <laughs> at the feat that such experiences can be overcome and produce a man who can write a book so vivid, so unsentimentally forgiving, and so memorable. My own experience of reading Damon's memoir, and I had heard about it for a while because it's been gestating, um, and I know that you know, it's had various uh, forms and that he's been thinking about it for some while. The book finally arrived um, before Christmas, and I picked it up, and I did the thing. I had about 60 books I had to read before Damon's memoir, so I thought, I'll read the first page. And that very rare and magical thing happened that I actually simply could not put it down until it was finished. And Blake has talked about memoir um, and the confessional memoir and that genre. And actually, I, I don't really mind the term misery memoir. I just like the very literary ones. I like things like bad blood. Um, and for me, it's one of the most pleasing genres that people have decided not to veil these things as fiction, but to write them so openly, which I think is wonderful for everyone who can share that experience who maybe has something of that in their past. Or, and I think this will be the case for some people reading this book, is bloody glad that they don't. Um, but being Damon's book, it's tremendously funny. It's painfully funny. It's beautifully written. I have absolutely no doubt in saying this, and I'm much harsher on my friend's books, that it will be a future classic. It's right up there with Jeanette Winterson. I cried and I cried. I sobbed for Damien, but you also triumph with him, which is the wonderful thing. So it is also a book about escape and finding a safe place. Um, I was actually going to start this by saying, here is a man who needs no introduction. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> we know him as a salonier, as an author, as uh, the only man who can wear a bow tie and a waistcoat and look marvellous as a playwright, as somebody who's created this incredible event. But this book is extraordinary. It's about, um, for those of you who don't know about growing up gay and working class in industrial Scotland, I don't know that I can think of anywhere tougher to grow up gay. And my little sister thought she had it bad in Sevenoaks being a lesbian. <laughs> well... <laughs> just won't cut the mustard. <laughs> Over to Damien. Um, I've even changed stools and everything. I'm sitting... <laughs> 
sitting on the other side. Um, I don't have like an uh, elaborate introduction. Um, and talking to lots of people who are here tonight who've been at the salon before, it's been really interesting watching them go, yeah, now you know how it feels. Yeah. <laughs> and I do. Um, so anyway, so, so, so this book um, is a memoir. Um, and it's been, as Rowan said, something that's taken a long time, in fact, a lifetime um, for me to write. Um, and believe it or not, I'm actually really nervous about reading it tonight. Um, so if I go too fast, <laughs> slow me down. Um, anyway, the beginning is... Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I can see where this is going to go. I can see where, I'm already there with you. Um, so, so um, as we touched on with Alex and, and, and also with Blake, um, there are issues in memoir to do with subjectivity and truth. Um, and at this point, I'm going to kind of hand over from being a, a host to being a writer and just talk about it. So at the beginning of this book, there's, um, every chapter starts with a quote from Thatcher because she was kind of this um, fairy godmother slash wicked stepmother, mostly wicked stepmother, um, who, who governed my life growing up. And it seemed to me that she was like the queen. She was everywhere. She was all pervasive. Um, and my parents blamed her for every single thing that went wrong in our lives. And lots went wrong. Um, and the, the book starts with Thatcher. She says, of course, it's the same old story. Truth usually is the same old story. That was just before she was dispatched, by the way, in 1990. So this is from the introduction. I'm going to read three bits. The emotional trajectory of these three bits is setting the tone, making you cry, making you laugh. <laughs> Please uh, display the appropriate emotional response. <laughs> or you may find that you're not on the guest list in the future. <laughs> just saying. It's the 12th of October, 1984, and I'm just eight years old. Me and my mum are stuck to the BBC nine o'clock news in this strange new flat. We sit cross-legged on bare floorboards with coats for cushions and watch ambiances, police cars and fire engines, me maw, me maw, in black and white on the portable balancing on top of a tea chest. A flurry of dusty black bits fluttered out when I helped my mum turn the tea chest upside down and I thought tea only came in bags until this morning when the removal van came to take us to flat one, one Magdalen Drive, Carfin. My dad is back at 25 Ardgar Place, near Hill, with the big colour telly. My wee sister, Teeny, has cried herself to sleep in my mum's lap. Our old life is crammed in the cardboard boxes, bursting all around us. It's way past my bedtime, but rules are already being broken. My mum lifts an arm so I can snuggle in. She lights a regal cigarette and shakes her head at the telly, tutting and pulling me closer. I can't get close enough. Blue smoke cloaks us. Look at the devil, she huffs, puffing away at the telly where this blonde woman rising from rubble again and again like a cyberman of Doctor Who. All around her, the hotel's collapsing as bloody bodies are pulled out, but she stays calm. She's talking to the BBC with a man's voice, and even the police stop to listen. Life must go on as usual, she insists, as if life will do exactly what she tells it. <laughs> Shit, Disney burn Maggie won't, says my mum, smoking at the portable, puffing extra fast, super deep like it's a race. I look up at her with questioning eyes. We shouldn't be here. He doesn't like them. Cancer sticks, he calls them. She confides, smoothing Teenie's blonde bobbed hair with her free hand, her nails chewed to nothing. He is Logan, and according to all the arguments I've overheard, he's the man my mum is leaving my dad for. Right now, he's asleep in the next room because plumbers start early. We're not to wake, for, we're not to wake him. He was waiting for us, 
in the empty flat when we arrived with all our boxes. Not as tall as my dad, but not as short as my mum, he stood totally still, filling every room so we could hardly breathe. Without a word, he handed her a key, then pushed his face into hers. The wains, she whispered, blushing and shuffling. He looked down at Teeny, then at me, his mouth open, lips red, like the inside of a cut. I held her hand tight, and all the lines round everything sharpened. I breathed right in. So I see, he said, slowly, before whipping a Stanley knife from the pocket of his blue boiler suit and slashing the top of a box. I'm Logan. The telly was first to get unpacked. The news was already on when Logan plugged it in. He thumped it hard just once, and the picture cleared to show Maggie walking away from the bombed hotel. He shook his head and changed the channel, but there she was again. Nine hours of unpacking later, and the news is still on, and Maggie's still not dead. <laughs> he can't believe it. Neither can my mum. They hate her, and they say she hates Scotland, hates us. But all the people on the BBC seem glad she made it. Secretly, I am too. I don't want to see her dead. I don't know why. Maybe just because everybody else does. She's not done anything to me. I'd like to brush the dust from her big blonde hair like she's a girl's world. <laughs> Gay kid. <laughs> and tell her it'll all be all right. Of course, I can't admit this. Bitch, I say, the worst word I know, and flinch for a scalp. But my mum says nothing, not even a God forgive you. So I'm allowed to swear about Maggie. That's how bad she is. My mum takes one last puff. I don't want her to go and sleep in that bed with him. I close my eyes as she drops her cigarette, hissing into the dregs of a cuppa, and imagine celebrating Maggie's miraculous escape with the shiny, rich-looking people on the telly. The Grand Hotel survives. So does Maggie. So will I. Appropriate. Um, so, um, so the next bit um, is. So you'll have gathered now that my by now that my parents um, divorce, and there's a reason why, and I, I won't r reveal that just now. Um, but um, in any case, as often happens with divorce, um, the children kind of spend a lot of time shuttling backwards and forwards, um, and it's not really very easy to understand that when you're when you're a child. And I, for all I was an incredibly clever child, um, had. <laughs> had a difficult time grasping some aspects of, of the law. Um, so here's what happens w one day after school. We'd been reading The Witches by Roald Dahl, our teacher had read it out loud. After the home time bell that day, I, I wait at the zebra crossing with a lollipop lady who looks at me like I'm going the wrong way. Keir Hardy Memorial Primary School sits on top of a steep brae and it's icy all winter, but I'm not interested in sledging down with the boys from my class. I just want to get back home. Sidestepping the treacherous tarmac, I carefully crunch down the hill on the frosty grass. Boys shoot past me on borrowed bin lids like ex-wing fighters escaping the exploding Death Star before finally coming to rest in slushy puddles by the house that my mum now calls your dad's. I go in the back gate and turn the door handle. It's locked. It's never locked. There's no smell of dinner cooking, no steam on the window from tatties boiling to mush because my mum can't cook, no matter how hard she tries. I knock with my mittened hand, but it's muffled, so I unsnuggle my fingers and wish my mum would get the message that I'm growing up enough for gloves. The red paint on the back door of 25 Ardgar Place seems to say, stop, 
I knock again anyway. I start banging. It's colder and harder than ice against my knuckles, and still no answer. I go round the front and peek through the letterbox. A strange new view. My dad's not there, but he'll be home soon, and then he can explain why I've got to walk half a mile back to Carfin and the strange flat clouded, crowded without him when I could just stay here. I sit on the freezing cold step, the middle step of three, and note that it's dirty beneath the snow. There's a footprint I don't recognise, like someone stamped the bottom of a can in the snow, and then a few inches behind a pencil, was it some weird animal? It's not the Browns, he's Big St Bernard. Um, he's always got a bucket on his head because of his droopy red and eyes. I look around for stray thundercats. All I see is windows glowing warm and flashes of Gordon the Gopher, Gordon the Gopher causing chaos in the BBC's broom cupboard. I hate that gopher. <laughs> Soon Dungeons and Dragons will be on with those all-American kids fighting the winged, fanged, lisping Venger to get back home. What light there was has drained away, and now it's so dark, my dad almost lands on me as he takes the steps in one leap. For fuck's sake, Damien, he never swears. Then, worried, what are you doing here? It's freezing. You're freezing. He grabs my hands, rubs them as if I could choose to be warmer. He clasps both my hands in one of his and hoists me up while unlocking the door with the other. Come away in, he says, as if I need inviting into my own house. He's black as usual from his shift at the Craig, the steelworks. Blacker in the snow. In our scullery again, I start taking off my coat. Damien, son, what are you doing? Without answering, I walk to the understairs cupboard and hang up my coat instead of throwing it over a chair. I smile up at my dad, hoping for approval for doing something right without having first to be asked. He looks sad. What have I done? How can I make it better? He stands in his overalls, the colour of the night gathering its thoughts outside the window, then slowly sinks to his knees on the terracotta effect lino my mum loves. I step forward to catch him, knowing I can't, and he pulls me in, crushing me to his chest, till I've no air left and can't breathe in again, but don't care. My school shirt will be filthy, I think, sucking in the smell of him I didn't know I'd missed, coal and warmth and something sparkling like quartz. I only realise he's crying when tears roll past my collar down my neck. Oh, son, he says over and over. Oh, son, I can't cry. I want to, but I'm more scared than sad because I've not seen my dad cry before. He holds me at arm's length with his hands weighing on my shoulders and looks at me as if seeing me for the first time. For once we're the same height. His sooty face is streaked with white like reverse mascara tears. This isn't your home anymore, son. I stare dumbly. He sounds his next words carefully. You don't live here anymore. So you have to help me because I've lost the next bit. <laughs> um, not that bit. So um, you've met lots of the you've met lots of the people in the book, and this is another kind of really important character. Here we go. Useless. <laughs> so e each chapter starts with a, a, a quote, as I said, from Thatcher, um, and this this next quote is a cracker because she did have some good lines. Being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people, you aren't. <laughs> um, and. And so this is this you're about to meet now. You're about to meet now the other woman. 
Mary the Canary lives in a cloud of perfume and colours. She's an auxiliary nurse by day and a country and western singer by night. Bedpans and power ballads. <laughs> She's so glamorous she makes Mrs Hart look plain. She is the other woman and I'm being trained to hate her even though I've never met her. My mum, my auntie Louisa and Granny Mac can't stop talking about Mary the Canary. She's been spotted coming and going from 25 Ardgar Place by Lena next door and new furniture has been delivered. <laughs> She's the lipsticked, cat-nailed everything my mum is not. My mum has never worn a skirt, but Mary is never seen in trousers, never mind the tight snow-washed jeans my mum loves. Mary's feet are always crammed into what Granny Mac calls helter-skelters. Five-inch heels that boost her to all of five foot five. Her ash-blonde curls glistening with L-net hover a further five inches above her head. I'm dying to meet this dolly bud, gripped by her glamour, but I can't let on. So here's my mum on her. Bottle blonde, she huffs, furiously flushing the inside of a teapot that will all taste later. Pound shop dolly parton, midden, whore's handbag. <laughs> she curses into the suds before shushing me for asking what a whore is. <laughs> My dad has custody every second Friday from 4pm and the court says he's got to return us by 4pm on the Sunday, so I feel like a prized library book. Friday is the only day I run home from school because I know Logan won't be there. Like Jesus and God, my dad and him can't be in the same place at the same time. <laughs> With every step, my book-filled school bag bounces up and down, bruising my hip, but I don't mind because I'm going to see my dad tonight. I'm going to see my dad, I sing, trailing Teeny behind me, running along the road that I know he'll be driving down soon, and I imagine him racing beside me and letting me win. So we get to my dad's house later. Using his spare hand, my dad turns the back door handle, and I expect an annoyed pause as he realizes it's locked and has to fumble in his pocket for the key. But no, the door opens. Strange new smells slip out. There's somebody I want you to meet, says my dad. Like, a magic, like Jack's magic beanstalk, my sister tendrils herself around his leg, her head just by his knee. I'm looking around the scullery and it's cleaner than since my mum has been there, but not as clean as my mum likes it. There are fancy new things on the bunker. Parmesan cheese, salad cream and coleslaw. The things my mum passes by in the fine fair. There's a big round mirror where the cork board with dentist's appointment was. I'm taking all this in when she appears. I'm Mary, she says, and it's like a film just started in my head. Her hair is the blondest and biggest I've ever seen, bigger than Maggie's. Teeny is still clinging to my dad's leg, so I extend one hand for both of us. Her nails reach me before the rest of her fingers. <laughs> and I wonder how she peels tatties. Well, aren't we the little gent, she says, flashing Bambi eyes at my dad. From somewhere inside her, a tiny laugh escapes and it reaches me on a powerful waft of perfume I've never smelled before. I look down at her feet, bulging just slightly from bright yellow heels pressing into the faux terracotta linoleum my mum chose so carefully. She leaves a strange but familiar footprint. Come on through, she says, like we don't live there anymore. And I realise we don't. Our living room has gone. All that's left from before is Charlie sitting on the swing in his cage. I dash over to make sure it's really him, that he's not been replaced by another lesser canary. And I know it's still him because he smiles at me. We're in this together, I tell him telepathically. 
Jeannie is now standing on my dad's foot. So he swings her through on his leg. She's not said a word, but she doesn't need to. A tubular chrome dining table with a smoked glass top and six seats around it gleams where the old wooden fold-out stood. Who is going to sit there? Gone is the brown and orange three-piece suite and glowing new is white leatherette with steel inlaid arms that promise to feel gold cold against your arms and legs. The walls are white, white, white. The psychedelic carpet and the orange rug, the shape and colour of the sun, are nowhere to be seen. We appear to be wading through blood. It's American Shadow, announces Mary proudly, sweeping her hand. It matches my nails. Very 80s, your daddy loves it. Don't you, Glenn? <laughs> I flinch, hearing my dad's name used. Mary makes us wash our hands as if our mum didn't teach us and sits us all down at the table before cramming her nails into oven gloves to rescue a bubbling dish, which she plonks on a placemat. Another new thing. Strings of cheese stretch from dish to plate as Mary serves my dad, then me, then Tini. She then, Mary, then shakes something that smells like feet over my plate. (laughs) It's parmesan, she says, in a take-your-medicine tone. For your lasagna. (laughs) Last like a girl, and agony like one half of Cagney and Lacey. After a few mouthfuls, she asks if we like Nouvelle Cuisine, and we nod because it really does beat watery tatties and greasy mince. My mum loves us, but she doesn't love cooking, and cooking really doesn't love her. Our big colour telly, the only other survivor, stays dark. Mary finishes her tiny portion of lasagna and gets up to put an LP on the new stereo unit. My coat of many colours she trills in time with Dolly Parton and Charlie hops from perch to perch. When we're sure she's going to sing the whole song, we all stop eating to watch, and she takes to a stage only she can see. My dad can't take his eyes off her. None of us can. She finishes right along with Dolly, and while the record crackles round to the next song, we cannot help but clap our hands, even teeny. Next up, it's nine to five, and Charlie (laughs) sings too, and Mary grabs my dad, and they're dancing. He never danced with my mum, not even when she threatened to jump on his two left feet, and here he is dancing with his Mary, and he's rubbish, and I'm mortified, but I want to dance too. And then teeny gets up, and we're all out of breath, and our lasagna must be cold. When the next song starts, Dolly is spelling out a word, letter by letter, like my mum taught me on the floor (laughs) of this very room with her Mills and Boons. I'm the best reader in my class, and I've got my library card already. D-I-V-O. And my mind is racing to the end of the word that Mary and Dolly are singing together when my dad shouts, Mary! And nearly hits her as he lunges at the stereo, pushing the arm off the record just as Dolly says, R-C-E. Aside from the hissing speakers, the room is as silent as the glass topping the table. Charlie sits more still than his wee plastic pal. Glenn, you'll scratch the record, says Mary. And my dad says nothing, then really cheerfully, right, who's for a video? And me and Tini cheer because somebody needs to make some noise. I smile at Mary because nobody likes being in trouble. And I don't know what she's done wrong, but I don't want her to be sad. She's pretty, and she's only trying to be nice. I like your singing. I whisper, and she kisses me on my lips, and I'm sure she's left a mark.
Thank you very much. I hope you don't have to poke a fork in your eye. I have the fork. So, Damien Leighton Barth. That's right. Um, this, this is what he's called when he's little, when he's naughty. Um, this is what I thought was interesting. I felt I knew you a bit. We've known mm. each other, what, nearly 10 years. Yeah. Um, and then I realized, and this is a very extraordinary process of reading this kind of book, I didn't know you at all. Do you think it's going to be a shock for everyone, and what about your family? Oh, right, okay. Um, so I, I think everyone I'll deal with first, and then my family. Uh, <laughs> on the scale, it's everyone's family. Um, I, I think that a lot of people, I mean, the, the, I think Bloomsbury have, have done a brilliant job of publishing the book and, and only doing a sort of 100 or so proofs, and um, people who've read the book um, have got in touch and, um, in tears mostly um, and saying, well, I thought I knew you, but I realised I didn't know you at all. And I think, well, actually, no, you do know me. I am the person that you know. It's just that you know things about me that you didn't know before. Um, and, you know, um, there are lots of things in this book that, um, like Blake, I'd only, ever, I'd only ever shared with a therapist, although I got therapy for free at university and I didn't have to pay £50 an hour. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, but, you know, lo lots of things that I'd only have shared with a therapist or, or with my partner that I didn't ever think I'd share with the wider world. But, you know, so I think, I think people are surprised and people maybe did make, people in this room made assumptions about me and, and my upbringing and my childhood and whatever, and actually a lot of those might, might very well be, almost certainly are, wrong. Um, and, and with my family... Um, this is a hard one because um, there's, I've only shared the book with one person who's in, who's in the book, um, and she's here tonight. Um, and in the book, she's called Heather, um, and she's my oldest friend, and in fact, she's my last girlfriend. Um, <laughs> and I'd be very careful not to look at her right now, which is why I'm staring at Alex's dad. Um, <laughs> he's very uncomfortable. He's, a, he's very uncomfortable. He's a colonel in the army. <laughs> so not that uncomfortable. Um, in, in, any, in any case, um, I did only share it with one person, um, and I shared, uh, basically, I shared the book with the one person in my life that I felt really understood me and loved me and respected me and who cared for me when I was going through all this kind of stuff, and so I said to her, I'm giving you the opportunity to change what you want, um, and in actual fact, she came back and was, was incredibly honest and really fair. And she said the things, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the things uh, about it that made me feel uncomfortable just because they were so honest. I think you got it right. Um, she did say, also, that it's a kind of no-going-back book. Um, um, and I think that um, when I do share it with my parents, I'm sure, because there's a lot that they don't know. You know, my parents in this book aren't particularly the bad guys. My parents were feckless, um, but they were loving and they created a space in my life where bad things could happen. But I don't think my parents are bad people, and I love them very much. And it's very really interesting to hear what Blake was saying about how actually people can sometimes be really flattered by um, being kind of put in a book and, and maybe by being given a life beyond, beyond their own. That was a very long answer. Yeah. I would have interrupted me by now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that love does come through. 
Um, now, I was reading Guardian Family this weekend, which is a guilty pleasure once you have children. And uh, there was a piece about divorce, and someone said at the end of it, I think this is very true, that children, everyone says, I love my children, that love comes through. But mm. in fact, this woman said, children need to feel safe. Mm. And you, in that book, are unsafe a lot of the time. Mm. Have you come to some resolution with your parents about that now, or do you still look back and say, how could you have left me in situations where I was so unsafe? You know, I, I, um, I started writing this book a really long time ago, and I think maybe I was in a different place when I started it. Um, and I think I was angrier, and there are some people in this room who have been early readers of some of this material, and maybe they, they would agree that maybe some of the early stuff I wrote was a bit angrier. I'm just so not interested in making anybody feel bad who's reading this book um, or settling any kind of scores, because what happened happened, and terrible things happened. Um, and the, the fact is, is that the people who did the terrible things in the book almost certainly, well, I know, will say that they didn't do those mm. terrible things. Um, and I don't need them to say that they did those terrible things because I know. When did you decide to introduce Margaret Thatcher as a structural device? And I have to say, I think you make her quite enticing and <laughs> <laughs> Well, because she was just always there. And my, you know, my, I, she's one of the very early, you know, I remember when we got a television and I remember my, whenever she would come on, it was, it was quite exciting because people would swear, first of all, which was great. Um, and that didn't happen too much until my parents got divorced. And it was like fucking Maggie and this and that. And she was responsible for absolutely everything. I mean, practically the weather, it really was like she was <laughs> that hated. The only woman that was hated more that was also blonde was Myra Hindley. It was, she, was, she, was, she was absolutely up there. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and, she, and, and through my childhood, she was there. You know, she, my dad was a steel worker um, and she uh, tried very hard and succeeded in the end in closing the steelworks where my dad worked. Um, but that was complicated too because, um, you know, I, I loved the fact that my dad did this, as I saw it, very important job because where I lived, um, every night we had two sunsets, you know, so the sun would go down and then a few hours later the sun would go down again and that second sunset was my dad emptying the steel furnaces and the molten steel lighting up the sky. And you could see this for about 30 or 40 miles around. And it was bright enough that you could read in your bed. And so that was our second sunset. And I remember when that stopped. And that was awful. People were standing out on their front doorsteps. It was just... It was just... In, it was like the world had been turned completely upside down, you know. But the great thing about it was, although I loved the fact that my dad did this brilliant job in the steelworks and all the rest of it, it was dangerous. And people romanticize um, heavy industry and be like, oh, those wonderful miners. They fucking died in, you know, coal pits underground. And it was quite grim. And it was also quite grim in the steelworks. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's that great in a call center, but, you know. You have that, that, that story, that sort of apocryphal story about the man on fire that you tell. Yes. I mean, I remember that really clearly overhearing my dad talking about telling a story. Um, I mean, and I, and I think this is interesting. Mem uh, Blake had said memory's an unreliable tool. Um, and... You know, it is, but also, I, you know, some things are so clear and you just have to tell them. And the thing about my dad was that I remember he had to take some time off work and I don't really know what happened, but I know that what basically happened was that a colleague of his fell into some molten steel um, and that, my, that they pulled him out. Um, and the steel kept burning, even though he was out of the, even though he was out of the steel. And, the, and basically, he, 
by the time he died, the steel had kind of gone all the way up here. And it, I, I sort of, as a child, imagined a screaming mouth, you know, and uh, screaming in, into agony forever. Um, and my dad, I remember saying to my mum, was that he wanted to be pushed under. He didn't want to be pulled out of the steel. So, you know, I had quite mixed feelings about, about the closure of the Craig. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that it completely destroyed the community that I'm from. Tens of thousands of men out of working families made absolutely impoverished by it, and that was horrific. Um, but also, you know, I would rather my dad wasn't there. I certainly fucking don't want to be in the steelworks. I, I was looking um, Raven's Craig up, and I didn't realise it's apparently the largest derelict sort of area in Europe, four times the size of Monaco. So it's your landscape for childhood, unlike most files, must have just been obliterated. Well, I mean, there, there was a good thing about this Ravenscape, which was, that, I mean, apart from our amazing sunsets, was that it was a huge space, and you could go and play there. Um, and that was, you know, thrillingly dangerous. And so my friends and I would break in through the chain link fence at the back and slide down this huge mountain of scree um, and get to a factory that there was nobody in, but there was, like, lots of fast-moving machinery, and it was quite thrilling. And, you know, and you'd just play with really dangerous chemicals. <laughs> and it was great. Um, I, it was like Swallows and Amazons, but meets Taggart, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> what about the frog game? The frog game. I mean, the, I think the thing, I, it's interesting, you know, I remember when um, Jojo Moyes read the book earlier on, and she said one of the things that struck her was this kind of casual violence. And I think, you know, um, growing up in the west of Scotland, you kind of get used to it. <laughs> um, and it's like, it's like Northern Ireland without the bombs, um, basically, in terms of sectarian violence, but it's also just quite a brutal culture. And there's a sort of Scottish Gothic um, that, that I write about in the book. And the frog game is very straightforward. It's just when you and your friends go and you take... You, you stand very still on a pond until frogs swim up to your feet and you catch them, and you take them out and you play tennis, but you use the frog as the ball. <laughs> um, and that's quite straightforward. But I did only do that once, and I have to say, that was a real moment in my life because I really realised... It's like the moments where you start to realise you're different from the other boys around you for all sorts of reasons. is not that into smashing a frog up with a tennis bat. <laughs> But for you, books were clearly the way out. They were. Um, I mean, my mum my mom taught me to read using Mills and Boons, which is perhaps why I have such a romantic view of the world. <laughs> all doctors will be rescued. Um, all nurses will be rescued by a doctor um, in a good time. Um, yeah, she did. She had a word ten, and she cut the words out, and she, and she taught me to read. And, and then I read very, very, very quickly. And the book is full, actually, of books. Um, you know, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia um, were really important to me. I was also a very religious child. <laughs> um, I had a Catholic mum and a Protestant dad, and um, as a way of being good, because I was also very good, I was, um, I would go to church and to chapel. So, you know, um, and church and chapel are full of churches for Protestants, chapels um, for Catholics. Um, and they're full of stories, right? They're full of fantastic stories. The Bible is full of great stories none of which you should believe. Um, but um, they're full of great stories. And so, and so through that and through my mum teaching me to read, I got into books. And, and books were a way out. Not just books, actually. I have to say this, libraries. Um, libraries were a space that I went to as a child um, when things were very awful. Um, I would go to my local library, which I knew would be warm, which I knew would be quiet, where I knew that nobody would hurt me. Um, and I would get all the books that I could get, and I would sit in the corner of that library. And I did that at school. I was the school librarian. Rock on. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm going to throw this open to all of you in a minute. I've just discovered leaning forward helps. just want to ask Damien one more question because I think, just in case it doesn't come up, because I do think Young Consumer of the Year competition oh, yeah. deserves a mention. Yeah, no, I, there was this insane thing when I was at school where this is how fucking awful the 80s were and you didn't even realise it until you look back. <laughs> but um, there, was a, there was a competition uh, sponsored by the newly privatised British Telecom called the BT Young Consumer of the Year Award. <laughs> and basically it was just appalling and, um, and we had a team I got a team together and we had questions and it was questions like who is the governor of the Bank of England Bzzz, Eddie George you know what does APR stand for uh, you know and you go on like that and basically we, we, we kind of got you know by being brutal and reading you know the FT and the Guardian and papers that were above our station which we had to go to it on a bus to get um, we, um, we, we won the Scottish heats and we got to the national finals which were in Brighton Woo! And that was just, a, that was like, you know, the Emerald City shimmering on the horizon. <laughs> because at Brighton, Bright, lots of things happened in Brighton. Brighton is where they tried to kill Maggie Thatcher, and it exploded into my consciousness early on. Brighton is where AIDS happened, and because of AIDS, that, that meant backtracking that there were homosexuals, which I was starting to get a feeling I might be one of. And I thought, right, if I can just get to Brighton, you know, I can find bomb-making homosexuals. Um, <laughs> And I did. It's great. <laughs> we all know where the first question's coming from. Sylvia! Yes. There you go! Go on, Mick, go on. Yeah. It's weird doing research in the It is. Um, on a personal and political level, mm. Maggie really impacted on you. Yeah. Looking at the, you know, 30 years on or so, what is her legacy for you? What, so the question was, what's Maggie's legacy for me? If I, that's your bet. You have to oh, sorry. The question is, what is, what is Maggie's legacy for Damien? Sorry, if only I could get a Scottish accent, I could do this correctly. Well, well I think I, I, for, for me, it was really interesting yesterday watching the debate in the House of Commons um, because, um, excuse me, actually gay marriage it's just about the most conservative thing that you could have, right? Gay people wanting to be like straight people is quite conservative. Um, and, and I was thinking, what would, she, what would she have thought? Because actually, and it was mentioned in the House of Commons, in 1967, one of the first votes that Thatcher did was to decriminalise homosexuality. Right? She was a libertarian. She was a scientist. She, at this point in her life, was not the mental bigot that she was at the end. Um, and, you know, so she was making kind of more positive choices then best way I can think of saying it. Um, and for her legacy for me, I think, the message that I got, and you know, if, if you're kind of around my age, plus or minus five years either side, um, you, you know, she, she shapes your generation. You're one of Thatcher's children. I am one of Thatcher's children. She is my other mother. And the messages that she gave me were, you can be yourself, you can be an individual, it doesn't matter where you came from, it matters where you're going. Um, and that was, that, was what was, that was what was most important to me. And also, she was a woman amongst all those frankly ridiculous wet men um, and she stood out because of that and that, that was really inspirational to me also she did look quite good in a headscarf at a mm -hmm. Challenger tank <laughs> in the Falklands and I will say that was an early moment of glamour for me mm. also she did tell you a handbag was for hitting men with not for holding over your arm like, right. sort of like huge accessory right quite hands up and again to start oh, can't you door. can't do that I can't no. choose I'm <laughs> okay lady sitting down there and I'm less likely to know everyone's names than Damien yes shout hi Damien you've been doing the dance for seven layoffs in this book <laughs> so I'm surrounded in this along mm. last time you brought the cover along which I love brilliant <laughs> tonight you've read from it so effectively you're standing in front of the main 
Yes. Oh no, that was a while ago, but yeah. Okay. okay, so the question is, can you forgive the Tories who have come a long way from rampant homophobia and Section 28 to the triumph, even though most of the Tories didn't vote for it, but still. <laughs> I don't think, actually, I really don't feel cynical about David. I feel cynical mm. about David Cameron very often, but I don't mm. feel cynical about this time. I think he's done a good thing. Um, I, so a very, very succinct answer to your question is no. <laughs> no, not forgiven. Gentleman there, yes. Patrick Strudwick. Oh, sorry. Great, great encomium. You should just repeat that because that was brilliant. Um, I sorry the question is <laughs> thanks Rowan the question is is he telling everyone's story he's telling my story your story I think, I think the thing is is that um, I, I was, was writing the book and I just really wanted you know I just really wanted to be tr as honest and truthful as, as, Diana, as Diana said to, you know, to sort of tell it like it was tell and stripped bare of emotion and I, as, as insofar as that's possible. So I just wanted to sort of talk about that. And I didn't really, I have to be honest, realise until after the fact that, that my experience was, was um, so common. I mean, I think you think your own story is your own story. And I, I don't really think I realised that there were lots and lots and lots of other boys like me who were being bullied and who had, you know, who, who had things done to them at, at school or by relatives who didn't understand them or who didn't love them or, or care for them. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought when I was dialing 0800 which is the child line number, that, you know, there weren't that many other people like me. And I think that was the great success of homophobia and also of Clause 28, which said that, you know, you couldn't talk about, about being gay at school. Teachers couldn't talk to you or give you advice. And I remember going to a teacher, and this is a, a, a part in the book, going to a teacher and saying, talk to me about who I am and being told they couldn't talk to me. Um, and there's a character that I haven't talked about in the book um, that I haven't, I haven't read about tonight, um, who is Mark um, in the book, who was born um, within two weeks of me. Or his parents like went to school with my parents. They got married at the same time. They got divorced at the same time. He and I realized we were gay at the same time. And we kind of fell in love, and you know, we both fell in love with Patrick Swayze at the same time, and learned to do dirty dancing at the same time. And he was much more flexible than I am, um, you know. And our lives took very different paths, um, and my life brought me here, um, and his choices took him somewhere else, um, and that's really hard. And so I, 
I'm really surprised. I'm also, I have to say, I'm thinking about AIDS, which is the thing that shaped um, my generation of gay men, and, and seeing that episode, uh, sorry, that advert on the telly with the tombstone, you know, and the icebergs, and voiced by John, John Hart from, you know, the, the Naked Civil Servant, which was a bit weird casting. Um, and it was just, you know, and it was basically like, you're going to die, you gay, dirty boy. You know, and I just thought, oh my God, and I don't know what I'm going to die from. And I really did think that at that point in my life, I had AIDS and I was going to die, and, and it would happen very soon. Um, and I didn't, you know, I have a birthmark on my neck, and I thought, oh my God, quite literally, that is AIDS on my neck. Um, and then, you know, I remember we had no knowledge, you know, this is before the internet. Um, and so, you know, you have no way of talking to other people who are like you or finding other people like you. So you think you're very alone. So, to, to, sorry, to be very, very quick, summarize your question, I think that my story is, it is the first time that story's been told of our, of our generation of gay men. And I do think it also speaks to the straight people who saw those adverts and who felt marginalized and dirty for having had any kind of messing around behind the bike sheds. That's all of you. Um, I get to... Going to come over here. Um, just been a few. Oh, you Susie, I think has had an arm. Susie, first. I just wanted to say, um, if Mrs. Thatcher hadn't existed, do you think you would have had to invent her or someone like her? <laughs> She is. I think the, the great thing about the, the question was if she didn't exist, to, uh, does Susie think I would have had to invent her or someone like her? She is a fantastic character. I mean, that's the thing about her. She is just huge and larger than life. And if you look back at any of the videos of her on YouTube, of which there are many by really creepy, weird fans, mostly gay men, um, um, you know, she is this giant, giant character. And the thing I think about her is, is, yes, she did so many things wrong. She absolutely did so many things wrong. I don't take to defend her. I wouldn't have voted for her, although I think it's very interesting that Jeanette Winterson did vote for her and she talks about that um, in her new memoir which I love very much um, but you know she she uh, you know would I have voted for her I, I, I don't think I would but but she is a fantastic character and she does have these deeply held beliefs which I really truly don't believe that anybody in the coalition government has today mm. right uh, one at the far back gentleman the red jumper shout yes Mm. And I wonder which was more important to you when you were dealing with being closest to you, honesty or fairness? Sorry, say again, that last bit. I wonder uh, when you were writing the book, mm -hmm. what was more important to you when you were dealing with being closest to you, honesty, your perspective, or fairness? Honesty, my perspective, or fairness. Can you really divide them? I mean, I just think it's very hard because I actually put off writing the book for years because I thought the people in my life that I love, I love my mum and my dad very much, I love my sister, I love my brother, um, and I didn't want them to feel um, put down or uh, aggrieved or insulted or offended by by this book. So I put, actually put off doing that for years. And it was actually only, I read two books. I read Diana Athill's first memoir and I read Satnam Sanghera's memoir. And um, in different ways, they both talk about this idea that, you know, you know, you're not the only pebble on the beach, right? So you have to get used to the fact that you're telling your story. And it is my story, so I'm going to tell it like I want, mm. like I want to tell it. Um, and I think that some of the people in the book come out of it really, really badly. And they shouldn't have been so bad. But Teeny comes out of it very well, though she is oh, the my person, one person for whom just everything is so slightly golden around your mentions of her. Oh, she's well, she's you know she's beloved. She's my little sister, and um, um, um I had an I had an older sister who died, um, w um, which is one of the things that happens at the start of the book. And my parents showing an astonishing um, 
originality gave my younger sister the same name as my older sister. <laughs> no darkness there at all. Um, and, um, and um, I, you know, she's, she's, she's great, and I love my sister very much. And I think I, a lot of what happens in the book uh, um, is, is me trying to shield my sister from things, is me trying to stop um, bad things happening to my sister. Um, and that, you know, and that very often involves me putting myself in between my sister um, and Logan, who's the character that I introduced at the beginning of the book, who's, um, who's not my stepfather because my mother never married him, but who is, you know, the other, the kind of the, 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 the other man, if you like, and, and Mary the Canary, who is, who is the other woman. And she's just, I mean, you know, she was just mental. <laughs> um, you, you know, but that, and that may be why I have a Dolly Parton fascination to this day. <laughs> Me too. Oh, it's so hard to choose. Lady at the front. I found it very moving when you were reading. Um, it was the particular detail about uh, when you went to your dad's house and you hung up your coat because mm. you thought that was a good thing to do. And it, it, it was the stoicism of it and it was the taking responsibility of trying to make things okay when you're a small child. Mm. And I wondered, when you were writing this book, did you... Was it almost a process of, of therapy, of kind of understanding what had happened to you and that those things weren't your responsibility and you couldn't have made it better? Or had that already happened? Um, I, think that, I think the, the question was about taking responsibility and, 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 and understanding, uh, is it a therapeutic process when you do this kind of book? Um, I did take an awful lot of responsibility as a child for various things. Um, in various stages of um, of the disintegration of my family, um, and um, without giving away too much, I mean there were lots of simple things like you know, uh, my mum becomes very ill in the book, and my mum is absent for a long period of time, and you don't discover why for a long time, and um, and I was kind of given the task of looking doing all her chores and stuff, you know, in, in the house. And, and later on, that meant stuff like, you know, I paid the bills and did all that, you know, dealt with the gas man and stuff. And I was like, you know, 10 years old or whatever. Um, so, you know, I was a very hyper-responsible and extremely good boy. You know, I was very, very, very good um, up until a point where in my teens where I just kind of sort of slightly lost it. And part of that was also about being very religious. Um, but um, just... You, you said about taking responsibility and the second part of your question was about therapeutic. Was it therapeutic? I tell you what, I thought I knew it all until I started writing it down. And then when I started writing stuff down, I thought, that is why I feel this way about these things. And, you know, there's a, there, there's a very specific incident. Um, so just... Yeah, I'll just tell you. Um, you know, I have like real issues with people with bad table manners, and I thought that just was because I'm like adoptedly bourgeois and easily annoyed. <laughs> and in actual fact, and in actual fact, it's because my stepfather really had a problem with children who had bad table manners, and I was a child, and therefore uh, children automatically just make noise and all the rest of it. And I learned in a horrible way uh, the the question, and I did not make that connection. And it's like I'm. 36 years old and I've had a lot of therapy and I still was finding stuff out about myself when I was writing that book and I and you know and I think the difficult thing is, is my family's going to find stuff out that they didn't know um, but you know they'll just have to deal with that when you found the voice of yourself as a child mm. did you was it like being under hypnosis did things come back that you hadn't remembered you know, previously I mean um you know my, my my partner's here and he supported me a lot through the through the writing of this and um, a lot entirely, um, and there were there were periods of time where I would go out to my shed 
Um, and I'd sort of pet the chickens, and I'd walk down the path to my shed, and I'd get to my shed, and I'd sit there, and it'd be like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, and I wouldn't get up from, from that desk until it was 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night, and I'd actually not even gone to the toilet. Like, I just sat at my desk and just written and written and written until my hands were sore, and then there are a couple of moments in the book that are really hard for me to write that I put off writing for a long time, and when I finished writing those books, when I finished writing those bits in the book, I got up out of my shed and I was sick in my, in my garden. And, and do you know what? Felt great. <laughs> Thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should take just two more questions, maybe. Two more questions, so. Sure. I've got two very quick questions. One, if she could read, what would Maggie make of Maggie? <laughs> secondly, who's going to play you in the future film? Yeah. <laughs> so, I remember this now. What would Maggie make of the book and who will play Damien in the feature film and we might actually have a little bucket so everyone can write a name. <laughs> um, well, um, I, th there's a, the, the epilogue of the book um, is, is an interview between me and a, and a civil servant, a very senior civil servant, because um, I then went on to work at the Times and all the rest of it and this was a conversation between me and somebody then um, and I'll leave it for you to find out at the end of the book what he says about what Thatcher would think of me. Um, I, I think that well, I think, to be honest, she'd probably, like, have gagged on the gay sex at page 40. Um, but if she, if, she pushed, if she pushed on through, um, you know, I think she'd been done with it in the end. I think she'd... And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know who... who, um, who it's really interesting because the, um, the, the film and TV options have gone out and lots of people have kind of got very excited about it. And people keep saying that question, of who do you think would, would play you? Some, like, revolting child actor, probably, <laughs> I imagine. Some precocious, like I was, annoying. Precocious <laughs> child. So, anyway, last question. Who, who should, where's it going from? There was a hand up. Who wants it most? Oh, <laughs> Samantha. Um, if there's one thing you can say to your younger self for those Uh, do you want to repeat the question? Oh, sorry, if there's one thing that Damien... <laughs> so, so rubbish at doing Cannot get the staff. I will no. just say that. So, no, it's really harsh. I just thought it's I'm really Fail. used to Damien doing the talking. Um, <laughs> um, if there's one thing hand, she scribbled all over her hand. It's like Madonna's yeah, tattoos. Yeah. It's just because just just it's, oh, it's, you know, it's the way of cheating, isn't it? I've done it all my life. That's what got me through my finals. Um, <laughs> if, the, if, if Damien's younger self could say one thing to him, what, what well, would it be? Or if I could say one thing to my younger self. Oh, you sorry, the other way around. <laughs> <I> <laughs> um, what would I say? I um, like it the other way around. <laughs> um, well, I could do them. I don't know if I could do them both. I think... Um, I think if I could say it to my, to my younger self, I could say that, um, that if you just keep pushing at the back of the wardrobe, you will eventually get through. But what about your granny saying? Because that's what I got written my granny, my granny says a brilliant thing. Um, my granny Mac's wisdom is, is throughout this book, and she says, and it's true, what's for you doesn't go by you. Um, what's for you won't go past you and I don't think that it has so I want to say thank you to you and all of you for listening to me